If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. That's page 947 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a good English Bible, feel free to take that as our gift to you this morning. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, when I say John chapter 6, that's the big number 6. When I say verse 35, that's the little 35 there on page 947. A few weeks ago, I asked an uncomfortable question. What do you fear? We thought about the things that regularly give us anxiety. Let's think about the flip side. More comfortable. When is it that you feel the safest? When is it you feel most secure, most at peace? Maybe it's when you're in your home. Maybe it's when you're in your home and all your roommates are there. Maybe it's when you're in your home and your roommates are not there. Maybe it's when your spouse is home. Maybe it's when you're visiting your folks for the holidays and you're staying in your childhood house. Maybe it's when you're with your dog. Maybe it's when you're doing a particular activity or not doing a particular activity. When is it you feel the safest? You're so safe, in fact, that your mind is not even taken up with the potential for pain or hurt. It's not even on the radar. You're just at peace. I saw a recent study that suggests close to 75% of young adults, it's a lot in this room, feel an almost daily, almost daily um, sense of concern for their safety. One time a day, they at least find themselves in a position where they feel concerned for their safety. We'll probably have a good idea of when those times are, but when is it that we feel most at peace? Our kids love playing in the backyard. Many of you have been over. We have trampoline. We got a playground. We got nice grass. And they love to play back there. They're incredibly carefree. It's part of our home. You know, if you were to drop them off just a few streets over and leave them there, that would be cruel. They would, I think, quickly become overcome with fear. They'd be somewhere unfamiliar and far and big and scary. The potential for, for harm would be high. But of course, in our backyard, they feel peace. We have more worries for them as parents than they do for themselves. <laughs> um, you notice if you've been to our house, there's an alley that backs up and wraps around. We get a lot of foot traffic at our house. It serves, this alley in particular, serves as a cut through. So people walk a lot through there. In fact, when we moved in, I think someone was maybe living back there. And, you know, we, we have conversations with our kids about strangers. We don't want them to be overcome with fear, but we want them to have a healthy fear of the world. And so we talk to them about things, of course, they don't fully understand or comprehend, but they do have some understanding that children sometimes go missing. It's possible for parents to lose one of their kids because somebody takes them. So we have a rule when they're playing in the backyard, and they're not allowed to talk to strangers. It's pretty simple. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter if they're offering you puppies or candy or commenting on the weather. They're not allowed to talk to strangers when they're in the backyard, especially when we're inside. And if someone does talk to them over the fence, they're supposed to do two things. One, they run to the house. And second, they start screaming. But they don't just scream anything. Our kids scream a lot. You know, they scream a lot. They scream in the backyard. We've got this code. I have this code that if they scream it, I know it's serious. So I, was, I rehearse this with the kids sometimes. I was rehearsing this with them the other day. I asked them, you know, what do you do? You run out of the house. What do you scream? Hannah replies, we scream, Daddy, Daddy. And then without skipping a beat, he tells me why. He says, because no one wants to see Daddy angry. <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts telling me about, you know, some people are not afraid of moms, but they're, they're afraid of dads. I'm like, okay. I tell him, that's right. Nobody wants to see me come outside mad. That's all they need to know. And they play in peace, right? There's a world to be anxious about, but they're in the safety of their home under the care of the mother and the protection of their father. They're safe. You recall what leads to anxiety. We perceive harm. We get a sense of the fact that we lack control and we live as though there's no God. But what are the conditions for peace? It's even more simple. We simply trust our father. In fact, we recognize there's always a potential for harm, at least bodily harm. We recognize the fact that we're never in control, but that God is. 
the God who loves us and bought us with his blood, the sovereign of the universe. He is in control and he cares for us. We trust his promises. Okay, we saw this especially in the trial with the storm. I want to reach back to my last sermon to kind of add another layer here in John 6. When we're anxious about the potential for pain or loss, most of the time it tends to center on things that are physical and temporary. This is why, of course, Jesus tells us to store up treasure not on earth where things decay and corrupt, but rather in heaven. This is why Jesus tells us to orient ourselves to live not for the bread or food that perishes, but rather for the food that leads to eternal life. The anxious person is a person whose entire life is caught up with the here and now. Okay, they've anchored themselves to the wind. There's no peace there. The Christian ought to be a person at peace because what matters most to them cannot be taken away. Their king is Christ, he does not fade, his kingdom does not corrupt, the life he gives never dies, and he guards them. How do we know? It's because God gives us precious promises in his word. We see it's the promises of God that guard our hearts and guide us to heaven. They create peace and give us perseverance. Keep that in mind as we read the text. John chapter 6, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me in reverence for Holy Scripture. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We'll see three promises in the text today that produce peace in the heart of the Christian and perseverance on their journey to heaven. Three promises that produce peace and perseverance. Jesus promises first, eternal satisfaction. Jesus promises eternal security. And thirdly, Jesus promises eternal salvation. Big shout out to Mark Catlin for giving me the third one. Jesus promises eternal satisfaction, eternal security, eternal salvation. Now, for the context, you'll remember, of course, that Jesus had been healing in Jerusalem. People had been seeing his signs, and so they gathered. They found him. Jesus then miraculously healed them from five barley loaves. It became clear to Christ, however, that the people were not interested in Jesus for Jesus's sake. Rather, as they were with him and they saw the signs their personal ambitions, their political desires were aroused. They're thinking this guy is here to make life easy. Let's make him our king. Jesus, as we saw, he retreated. He then goes to the other side of the sea. The crowd finds him there. And you'll recall, this is important, Jesus tells the crowds that they went looking for him, not because they saw and understood or perceived the signs, but rather, they went back to Christ because their stomachs were full. They really didn't want him as king but servant. They're willing to follow him as far as the stuff goes. And what Jesus is doing in this conversation, Jesus is trying to get the people to lift their gaze from the temporary to the eternal, from the material to the spiritual. And he's doing it using this bread metaphor. Right? It gets right to our need for life. Jesus, of course, it's 
speaking from the sign he just did. He's drawing from Israel's history. The people are picking this up because they're starting to make a comparison between Moses feeding the masses with manna and Jesus feeding with barley loaves. They're thinking that Jesus' sign doesn't really compare to Moses's. And we left them last time with Jesus explaining that the miracle, they've missed it. Not really the manna or the barley, rather they were pointing to the miracle which is God become man. The miracle is that God became a man. He's come down from heaven to give life where there's death, to satisfy where there's hunger, to forgive where there's sin. Jesus is the miracle. So we catch back up with Christ. He's in the middle of this conversation with a group of skeptics. But again, we as his followers will hear three promises, three sweet promises that are intended to give us peace and perseverance. First, Jesus promises eternal satisfaction. We see that there, verse 35, Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, Jesus is just making explicit what we already saw in verse 33. You can look back there. Jesus told the crowds, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, if there is to be true, meaningful, satisfying life, it's not going to be found in this world. It had to come from heaven. It has to come from God. Now, the people still don't quite understand because you'll remember what they told Jesus. Give us this bread always. They're thinking that just as God, through Moses, supplied the people with enough food for 40 years through manna and quail. They're wanting Jesus to provide this bread always for every meal. And Jesus is explaining to them, no, 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 actually, I am the bread of life. Okay, they still think he's talking about something temporary and material. Jesus is identifying himself as God who's come from heaven to give life. And he goes on, and here's where we see the real contrast, verse 35. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Again, here's the contrast between barley loaves and Jesus, between manna and Christ, between anything temporary that we are working for and the life that Jesus offers. Those who go to Christ will never hunger again. And he says those who go to him will never be thirsty again. He introduces actually a new concept, kind of a callback to John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. It's a foreshadowing of what Christ will say he requires of us, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. It's those who go to the sun and accept the whole sun, they never hunger or thirst again. Jesus supplies all of our soul's yearnings. We see that coming to Christ once, it secures something for us that a lifetime of working and meals and trinkets and money cannot give. Jesus offers real satisfaction. Now, we've seen Jesus drawing from the exodus narrative with the manna. Also, God supplies water for the people from the rock there. Jesus is likely also drawing from covenant promises that we see in Ex- or Isaiah chapter 55. Listen to the similarity between the offer and the promise. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who's thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. The food metaphor is an incredibly helpful analogy because we crave food because we need it to live. Our body gives us signs, undeniable signs that we need food to live. Hey, think back to the last time you were like really hungry. Maybe for some of you that's right now. (laughs) We're praying for you. But think back to the last time you were really hungry. Okay, you know, maybe it starts off, you're hearing a little bit of sound. You know, then it starts hurting in your stomach. Maybe your head starts hurting. Maybe you feel it in your eyes. 
Okay, there are undeniable physiological signs that you need to eat to live. Your body is willing to tell you through pain. Well, brothers and sisters, we're not just bodies, right? We can't be reduced to the composition of atoms or cells. Your desires for life, for never-ending happiness, to experience the fullness of joy, to be accepted, to be loved, to be welcomed, to be safe, those aren't animalistic instincts, right? The honey badger is not taken up with the desire for love. Your body craves food because you're hungry. Your soul desires something more than the material because it's hungry. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The frustration you feel at sin, the loss you feel at death, the craving in your heart for intimacy, the guilt you carry when you sin, brothers and sisters, those are hunger pangs. You are hungry for another world and another life. Your soul is crying out for relationship with God. He is your highest end and your truest happiness. He alone can satisfy. The problem is we often work for bread that perishes and we expect it to do what only bread from heaven can do. We look to work and drink and sex and popularity and fantasy to do what only God can. Is there any wonder we spend so much of our time anxious and frustrated and dissatisfied? Why work toward and pay for what does not satisfy when you can go to Christ for life? Says Jesus tells us, don't work for the bread that perishes, but for the food that leads to eternal life. Look at verse 35 again. It is just loaded with promises. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Notice Jesus welcomes all. No one who goes to him will be hungry or thirsty. He is bread from heaven come for the world. None are excluded from his offer. Not on the basis of class or gender or race. Not even on the basis of guilt. None are too criminal to come and eat with Christ. He invites us to come. Jesus welcomes all. And notice Jesus satisfies all. Jesus is not just suited for some tastes in the way that you might prefer, prefer Mexican food to Thai food or rom-coms to thrillers. No, just as the body needs food to eat, to live, so the whole person and every single person was made for God and needs him for life. Jesus welcomes all. He satisfies all. He says the one who goes to him will never hunger or thirst again. Now, if we're being honest, those of us who are in Christ, I think, would say we continue to feel hunger and thirst. We have seasons of greater and maybe lesser palpable hunger for God, seasons of greater and less satisfaction in the things of God, some seasons that require more faith of us to walk with God. What does Jesus mean then when he says we'll never hunger or thirst I think at least a couple things. One, there is a dramatic shift or change that happens to us when we move from death to life. When the Spirit is inside of us welling up to eternal life. When we've tasted of Christ, we should never be hungry in the way that we once were. In fact, we never even have to wonder where we'll go for life. It comes from Jesus and he always welcomes us. And secondly... Jesus is talking about eternal satisfaction. We experience now in part what we'll experience in the fullest degree on that day. When our bodies are glorified, when we're freed from sin, when we no longer need faith but look upon Christ with our eyes. It is then that we'll be fully satisfied. We're only getting appetizers right now. 
We long for the day that we will fully feast upon Christ with our eyes. Recall what we heard recently from Revelation chapter 7. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Between now and then we walk by faith. We go to Christ to feast upon him knowing that he and he alone gives life and can satisfy. In a way that nothing else can. But brothers and sisters don't miss this. We have to actually go to Christ. Look again at the language that's used. It's those who come to Christ who do not hunger and thirst. So often our souls are hungry and thirsty because we're simply not going to Jesus. Whenever Jess goes out of town with the kids, you know, maybe a couple times a year to visit her, folks, I do this thing where I just struggle to eat. <laughs> I don't know if anybody can relate. I get kind of, I just get kind of blue, like I immediately get down. Jess also makes most of our meals, so it's just, it's just bad combination. I don't feel like cooking to eat alone. And so I'll just kind of work and work and go long periods without eating. I know it's unhealthy. You don't need to email me or anything. I'll just sit there hungry. And guess what? It doesn't matter how much I busy my schedule. It doesn't matter how hungry I get. If I do not get up and eat, I will not be full. Who is it who's satisfied? It's the one who comes to Christ. The pictures of us getting up and going. And it's not as though he's hidden himself. He is the light of the world. He dwells inside us by his spirit. He meets with us in the gathering, in word and sacrament. We can enjoy his goodness in creation by faith, but we have to go to him. When your body tells you it's time to eat, the normal and healthy thing to do is to eat. When your soul tells you it's hungry, the normal and healthy thing is to go to Christ. His invitation is to come. Calvin writes, this is why Christ uses the bread illustration. He says, to come to Christ is intended to express the effect of faith, namely that it is in consequence of being driven by the feeling of our hunger that we fly to Christ to seek life. You see that it's when we feel hunger pangs in this world, we're intended to look to the next one. Yet how often when our souls are hungry, we seek to placate our desires with the temporal and the material. The problem is that we are willing to settle with for the cheap, for things that are fleeting and less satisfying. We work and pay for that which cannot give life when the bread of heaven sits at the table and bids us to come and eat. Come and eat without cost. Come and eat and never go hungry again. Why is this so hard for us to do? Well, in part because it requires faith. Look at verse 36. Jesus telling the crowds, but as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. How often we just don't believe that Jesus will satisfy us. Again, think about all that these people have seen. The healing signs, the miraculous feeding of the thousands, they suspect that he's gotten across the sea miraculously. And they see Jesus in a sense, but they don't really see him. This verse is intended as a rebuke. Jesus has been coming with a sweet promise and his offer to life, but the people still don't believe, and so Jesus moves from comfort to warning. You see me, but you don't believe. Friends, you can be in the presence of Jesus regularly and miss him. I want to speak to the children in particular, kids. It's possible to be near Jesus and by his disciples often. This happens in the church and in the home. It's possible to hear his teaching. It's possible to see God's works in the lives of your family as he provides and sustains for your parents and for your siblings. It's possible to see all that, to see Jesus and not 
believe. And as kids growing up in the church, it's going to be easy to use Jesus to your benefit. The more you seem like a Christian, the more it will please your parents, your pastors, your friends, your teachers. Hear us when we say what we want for you more than anything is that you would believe Jesus. That you would come to Jesus. That you would run to Jesus. That you would look to Jesus. You don't have to be any older, any richer, any better. Jesus invites you to come to him today. It's the invitation he gives all of us. <clears throat> but we see the crowds gather. They see Jesus. They see something of the signs, but they don't really see the sun. They don't believe why. We've seen this in the book of John. It's because people are blind to the things of God. Jesus is the light of the world. John 1.10, he was in the world, but the world didn't recognize him. Jesus comes into the world, and the world, his own people do not receive him. The world rejects Christ because they're blind. Now here's a question, does this make Jesus' ministry a failure? He's bred from heaven, come for the world. He's standing before his people. They don't recognize or receive him. Is his light not bright enough? Is his teaching not clear enough? Are his signs confusing? Is Jesus a failure? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. He's confident in his mission because it rests not in man but in God. Look at verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. We find another promise from Christ that grounds our peace and perseverance. Jesus promises us eternal security. Jesus promises eternal security. And brothers and sisters, why can we be confident we are secure in Christ? It's for the same reason that Jesus is confident he will accomplish his mission. Look at verse 37 again. Those whom the Father give to the Son will go to him. Not might go to him. Not will maybe go to him. They will. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to try, to see how it would work out. No, he came to save his people from their sins. Verse 37, those whom the Father gives to the Son will go to him. Verse 44, the Father draws them. Only those whom the Father draws will go. Verse 37, those who are drawn and go to the Son, he will never cast out. Verse 39, he loses no one. We see the problem in 36. They don't really see Jesus because they're blinded by their sin. We have to understand that this is willful, volitional blindness. It's not intellectual like Jesus is being confusing or difficult to understand. He's told them there, his message plainly, God has sent him into the world to give life. Believe in me. The people are saying, yeah, but you got any more bread? Okay, this is voluntary rejection. Romans 1, it's suppressing the truth. Why? Their hearts are blind, which is to say they're hardened against God. They have no taste for the things of God, no desire for his kingdom, no longing for his life. They want Jesus as a means to an end, and when they realize he is the end, they say, no thanks. The natural man is blind. John 1 10 and 11, we just saw that. John 3, 3, unless someone is born again, unless somebody's born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. So if people are blind by their sin, if they're hardened against God, if all they want to do is to reject God, how can man be saved? Salvation must be a work of God from beginning to end. Brothers and sisters, it does not begin with us. It begins with God. This is the doctrine of of election. I'll encourage you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 to look at the way Paul writes about it there. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 
3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Why or how? Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. And verse 11, in him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. God chose, he elected, he predestined, that's the language of scripture, some of us in Christ before the foundation of the world. John 1.12 says we're born not by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God. Paul writes in Romans 9.16, speaking of election, he says, God's sovereign choice depends not on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. That means God is giving us what we do not deserve. He shows mercy. Justice, the fair thing is God leaving all of us to our darkened minds and hardened hearts, but God in his mercy chose some of us in Christ despite our rejection of him. Again, those whom the Father chooses and draws will go to the Son. The Son receives them all. He casts none out. He loses none. Salvation is of God from the beginning to end. This is helpfully summarized in the Canons of Dort, Article 7. This is written 1618. Kind of long. Brace with me. Election is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, a human race who had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen, us, were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in common misery. God did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen in the foundation of their salvation. And so God decreed to give to Christ those chosen for salvation and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through the word and spirit. In other words, God decreed to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of the Son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. Brothers and sisters, this ought to lead us to humble worship before God. Why did God choose you? It wasn't because of your faith or your works or your perseverance or your intelligence. It wasn't because you're good or better than your neighbor. God chose you because he chose to love you. He set his love upon you before you were born, though he knew you'd be a sinner. That is mercy. I think it's worth noting that neither John, the author of the book, nor Jesus, the one who is speaking, feel embarrassed about this or feel even the need to rush to resolve some kind of tension. Jesus freely offers to all to come and eat. He then holds them responsible for not coming and eating, and then he explains why some do come. It's because the Father calls them. This is important for us to grasp. It's not that God has rejected some who would choose him. Rather, God is choosing some who would reject him. This one time. <laughs> it's not that God has rejected some who would choose him. Rather, God is choosing some who would reject him. Augustine illustrates it this way by saying two non-Christians go walk into a church 
They both hear the gospel. One responds. Augustine says he should stand up and praise God. The other doesn't. Augustine says he should blame himself. Scripture often summarizes this teaching or captures it with the words election or predestination. I love how Jesus puts it here in the book of John. He describes it as a gift. Salvation is a gift of God all the way down and all the way back. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son. He gave his son to the world. We're familiar with that gift, but there's a gift in verse 37. What is it? The Father is giving a gift, people, to Jesus. Notice God not only gives the Son to us, He gives us to Jesus. There's one unsung hero at every wedding, or at least most weddings. It's the father of the bride. He raised the bride, he pays for the wedding, and he gives her away to the groom as a gift. When the doors open and you see the bride in her beauty, there's someone standing next to her, holding her, prizing her, protecting her, And if he's a good dad, not giving her away to some random bum. The father walks his prize down the aisle to give her away to a worthy man. One who will care for her the way that he has. This is the doctrine of election. In eternity past, the father gives a bride, a people to the son. In the incarnation Jesus doesn't come hoping to see how things will turn out. He comes for his bride. Brothers and sisters, God gave you to Jesus before time itself began. And when Jesus came, he came for you. He came with a purpose. Have you ever noticed the difference between people who go to the store with a list and people who go to the store without a list? Okay, the list shoppers are like, why would you go to the store without a list? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Jess actually created like a shared notepad on her phone so I can see all the things that we need at the different stores. <clears throat> when I go to the store without a list, I'm, I'm aimless. You know, you, st- you start strong. Bread, bananas, milk, and then you just start meandering, okay? For, if it's me, Flaming Hot Cheetos, Oreos, some more chips, maybe some beer, some cobbler. At the end of the trip, I've wasted a lot of money and time on things that will not keep us alive for another week. (laughs) When you go to the store with a list, you go with a purpose. You know what you're there for. Jesus did not come to earth to meander about. He was not listless. He came to earth with names and he purchased them on the cross. Jesus' confidence is rock solid because he knew who he came for. He knew who he was dying for. He knew whom the Spirit would go to because they were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus may have been a stranger to you when you first heard the gospel, but you were not a stranger to him. You may have hated him, but he loved you. You may have No taste for him, but he offered you to come and eat. You may have not seen him, but he saw you. In eternity past, your name was written on his heart, and he took it to the cross. At the fullness of time, when the time is right, God assumed flesh, and he came here for you. As we sang today, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. Do you think there's any chance you're not making it? We can have absolute confidence in our salvation for the same reason Christ had confidence in his mission. It does not depend upon our will or efforts or faith or perseverance. It depends upon God. He graciously chose us and gave us to the Son. The Son welcomes us. He never casts us out. 
and he will not lose a single one. Brothers and sisters, you cannot sin your way out. You cannot ungift yourself to Christ. You will never go to him to find his arms closed off to you. You are his prized possession given to him by the Father. Do you think he's going to lose you? Jesus goes on and he tells us why he will never cast any out. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me. Jesus comes with purpose to welcome and receive those the Father gives and to not lose a single one. Not one. The other day, the, other, the kids and I were watching prehistoric, prehistoric Planet on Apple TV+. Plus. Has anybody seen it? Yes, one person. Maybe two people, Andrew. There we go. It's like Planet Earth, but with dinosaurs. Okay, obviously not real footage. Our kids don't get that. It's meant to look like a real documentary. It's like Planet Earth, but with dinosaurs. They even have David Attenborough narrating it. Okay, it feels real. Episode one, if you've seen it, you know, it begins with this T-Rex and like five baby T-Rexes. They're swimming in the ocean. They're trying to get to this island where they know there are these big turtles they can eat. So they're swimming. Daddy T-Rex notices that they're being tracked by a mosasaur. I think biggest dinosaur ever to live. They say it's a lizard. It looks like a giant shark with the head of a lizard, okay? Pretty sure it's in the book of Revelation. So, you know, much bigger than a T-Rex. This thing is trekking them down. There's one little T-Rex that's just struggling in the back. And the climax is building. They're getting closer and closer. The kids are anxiously watching to see if this little one, whom I named Josie, has a huge mistake. They're in the back. I know, I know. If it's going to make it. It's getting closer and closer. You know, we're getting to the climax and chomp. The Mosasaur eats the little one. I know. Now, we watch, we watch nature documentaries all the time. They've seen many a Bambi get eaten. This one really, really shook Pavey, our four-year-old. Probably, I'm not kidding you, 15 times that night she asked me, why didn't the daddy T-Rex save the baby? First question she asked me the next day, why didn't the daddy fight the lizard? She has no paradigm for a father that lets serious harm befall the child. Okay, I'm watching it. I know it's going to happen. This little guy's getting eaten. She's watching it unfold, and she thinks they're going to make it. They're going to be safe. They have to be. They're with their dad. He gets them home. What Pavey possesses is this beautiful, childlike, slightly inflated trust in me as her protector. She thinks daddy will not lose one. I've promised her that. It's not a real promise that I can keep. There is a promise that Jesus gives us. It is blood-bought, spirit-sealed, father-willed. He will not lose one. This is the will of the triune God. It is the mission of our Messiah. The only way one of us who are in Christ does not make it is if Jesus fails his father. It's not going to happen. You see what's so beautiful about the doctrine of election? It teaches us that salvation is a gift all the way back and all the way forward. Our church's confession puts it beautifully this way. We believe that those whom God has accepted in Christ effectively called and sanctified by his Holy Spirit, will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. Many fall away, yes, even in John chapter 6. Why? They're superficial. Official professors. They went to Jesus for his stuff. Our confession goes on. A special providence watches over their welfare. God is guarding us. 
And that though they may fall through neglect and temptation and sin, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again to repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That their perseverance depends not upon their will, but upon the immutability that's the unchanging decree of election. Okay, God would have to change his mind. It depends upon, it flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. God would have to stop loving us upon the efficacy and merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him. Jesus' blood would have to stop working. And upon the Spirit's sealing and abiding presence, the guarantee of their inheritance, the Spirit would have to leave us, and he won't. If you are in Christ, your salvation is guaranteed. It is promised by God. It depends upon you ultimately not for a single second. You were given to Christ in eternity past and he purchased you on the cross. In due time from the throne of heaven, God called you by his spirit. He gave you the gifts of faith and repentance. He sealed you with the spirit. Your heart reads, I belong to God. God is watching over you. Do we sin? Yes. Can we even fall into serious, grace-impairing, church-disciplining sin? Yes, and we should fear it. But if we belong to Christ, the Father will draw us back. And there we will find the Son not shaking his head at us, but with open arms inviting us to come and eat. Our prize is guarded for us in heaven. No army on hell or earth can stop us from making it. You see how this creates peace? There's not even a potential for harm. Bodily harm, sure. Jesus says, don't even fear those. All they can do is kill your body. But what matters most to us, our salvation, our king, his kingdom, it cannot be taken away. We cannot lose our salvation. Our inheritance is promised to us by God. It's guarded for us by God. That is a warm blanket for the soul, brothers and sisters. Jesus promised us eternal satisfaction. He promises us eternal security. And Jesus promises us eternal salvation. We consider our last point briefly, looking at verse 39 again. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none, but rather what? I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Again, notice this offer is made to all. Some see and don't believe, but Jesus is saying those who see and do believe receive eternal life now. It's consummated when we're raised up on the last day. It's eternal life as we've seen in John. It is communion with God. This is what grounds our satisfaction and our security. It's relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's given to those who believe. It's given to those who come. Again, don't think of faith as a kind of mere intellectual assent to something that is cold or sterile. Jesus is inviting us to come. Calvin writes here, faith does not look at Christ only at a distance, but embraces him that he may become ours and dwell in us. It causes us to be incorporated with him, to have life in common with him, and in short, to become one with him. When Jesus offers us eternal life, he's offering us his life. His righteousness becomes ours. His death on the cross becomes ours. His resurrection, ours. His adoption, ours. His spirit, ours. Jesus gives us his life. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, we believe that this morning in our service, in the preaching of the word and the ordinances in particular, that you can see Jesus and he's speaking to you, inviting you today to come and have life. And the good news of the gospel is that it's a gift, that though we have and will continue to sin against him, that Jesus lived perfectly on our behalf, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, 
And he offers us all, you in particular right now, life. Would you come to him? We would encourage you to stick around afterwards to chat with one of our pastors or any one of the members here. We love talking about the life we have in Jesus. And Christian, notice that Jesus is promising us life eternal. It's life with God without end. It's life that begins in faith and ends in resurrection. Jesus promises to raise raise us up. There's actually a bit of irony in spending your whole life here on earth working for the material and the temporary to the neglect of your soul when Jesus actually promises us both, to bring fulfillment to both. If you spend your whole life here focused on the temporary and the physical, it will end in disappointment and frustration. Your body will fail you. Your things will rust. Your stuff will be stolen by thieves. None of it can give life and most of it won't last. If you live for heaven, you set your hope in a world that is to come. Jesus offers us the forgiveness of sins, the newness of life, adoption into the family, a share in his kingdom, presence of the spirit, and he offers us resurrection, entrance into the new creation, a place that is both spiritual and physical. On that day when the sky cracks and the trumpet sounds, we will see Jesus and we will be made like him. Our bodies will rise. We will enter a kingdom that is not subject to moth or rust or thief. And notice when this happens. Look at the text. It happens on the last day. Do you know what that means? It means we make it. Not even death can keep us from the welcome we will receive on the day of judgment. The new heaven and the new earth will be ours. Why? In eternity past, we were given to the Son. In the fullness of time, the Son came to carry out the Father's will in life and death. At the moment of our salvation, he welcomed us and gave us life. On the last day, he will raise us up. Between now and then, he guards us. He will not lose one. You see, the life he gives us is eternal. Not for a season, but forever. From creation to the cross to new creation, Jesus does not lose one of his people. Doesn't that create peace in our hearts? What promises we have from God's word? Let's pray. God, we are overwhelmed by your mercy to us this morning. That though we lay in misery with the whole of the human race, that in your kindness, you chose us, though we rejected you, though we would reject you. We thank you that you have lavished your mercy upon us in Christ Jesus that you intend to keep us, to preserve us on our way to heaven. We pray that the promises we've heard in the gathering this morning would create peace in our hearts, would give us endurance in our race. We pray if any non-Christian is here that they would hear the invitation that Jesus is giving to them. We pray that they would not harden their hearts knowing that today is the day of salvation. Would you open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ that they might feast upon him by faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by your spirit, amen.